Welcome to the Republican professor this afternoon. Well, actually this morning for me, this mor this afternoon in Florida, this morning in California, we have uh, quite a, a special guest, I would say, Dr. Justin Capes. Thanks for being here, Justin. Oh, thanks for having me. Justin, I've known you for a long time. Um, we go way back to our Biola days, uh, the graduate program there of philosophy. Yeah. Um, I remember you as like the free will guy. And it seems like every time you talk to Justin, this is not exactly true, but you always had something to say about free will. It was always on your mind. And you started publishing on it. And then I've been following your career for these many years you've made like a career on this and it's actually really cool to see from, from my perspective, you're teaching there in Florida. How's the weather there in Florida today? Beautiful. I actually just got back from the beach uh, not too long ago. So it was a, a nice day. It's supposed to actually get pretty hot here today, but it was, it was nice in the morning. The water was cool. So yeah, it's, it's great. Wow. You got in the water. Oh Yeah. Oh man, I would well, say come on down, but uh, there's too many people moving here, so uh, don't come on vacation, but don't move here. Well, that sounds idyllic. How long does it take you to get to the beach? Just depends on traffic. Five, ten minutes, maybe. Jeez. Yeah, it's it's nice. We're uh, we're about three miles from the beach. Wow. Uh, so, so you could ride your bike there easily. You could yeah, run could. there if you were, you know, into that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. If you're into that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't know why you would. I was just assuming it was a beach. I guess it could have been a cliff. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> How long does it take you to get to the cliff that you jump off of to get to the beach? But right. it seems no, like there's no, a lot no. of beaches there, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's St. It's Augustine is, is a, a beach town. Uh, the, the way it's set up is, or at least where we live, um, we live on the mainland, but there's also an island. So to get to the, to get to the, the beach beach, you have to sort of cross bridges, uh, one of three bridges to get over to the beach side, to the island. St. Augustine. Wow. What a great name. Yeah. Except, uh, as we know, it, it should be pronounced Augustine. Yeah. But, but the people here uh, don't have the correct pronunciation. So when well, in Rome. Right. But then, you know, in California, everything is Spanish. And you would think that with Florida, with the Spanish influence, it would have been in Spanish. Like San Diego. I believe that's St. James, right? Is yeah. it that St. James? I remember I looking that, at a Spanish Bible and seeing Diego, and I was like, what, what, what the heck is this? And they were like, oh, that's the book of James. Yeah. And I was like, wait, yeah. so hold on. San Diego is St. James? I never knew that. So there is, there why is, is it not Saint, of, why is it not San something or whatever? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. I, there is a lot of Spanish influence because the Spanish were the ones that I think originally uh, settled St. Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine has uh, one of its claims to fame is it's the oldest continuously inhabited uh, city in the United States. Okay. Um, you have to qualify with continuously inhabited, but it was the Spanish uh, who first colonized the area. And a, a lot of the, a lot of the streets around here do have uh, Spanish names, but I actually don't know where uh, hmm. the St. Augustine name came from. Yeah, I feel like that's well, that's Anglo. That's clearly Anglo. Right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to have to chase that down. I'm not going to be able to sleep. Uh, so um, you have, let me describe you for our listeners uh, on Apple Podcasts. If those of you watching on YouTube obviously don't need this description, but Justin has a, a, a is that a flannel shirt on? Is that? It's, it's kind of like a lumberjackish. Sure, shirt. yes, yes. And he's got a very large brawny beard. He could have easily been mistaken for the brawny um, guy on, you know, the the paper towel guy. Man, I'm really dating myself. That's probably so 80s, but. Um, 80s, great decade. Yeah. 
uh, Justin, uh, what is the answer about free will? I, I don't know if you uh, can just say it in a sentence, but we commonsensically have free will. But what do we mean by that? What do you mean by that? And or do we not have free will? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, probably well, the most go, awkward setup in the history of like interviews. Yeah. Let's go with uh, let, let's go with the question of what we mean by free will, because I think uh, that's actually a really important question. Um, the term free will itself really is a, a sort of technical academic term. It really doesn't crop up in everyday life. I mean, sometimes we talk about people doing things of their own free will, but usually we mean something pretty pedestrian by that. We, we roughly mean that they did it voluntarily, that uh, they weren't forced or coerced um, to do it. Uh, they didn't do it out of any sort of compulsion or mental illness or something like that. Um, I, I think that's that's typically what we mean. Um, and so, in that sense of free will, yeah, it's obvious. Uh, we definitely we definitely have that. We definitely do things that we aren't forced or coerced to do that we choose to do um, that we didn't do out of any sort of uh, serious uh, mental illness or compulsion or something like that. Um, at least for, you know, ordinary, mentally healthy adults. Um, so so that, that's a, a pretty common sense use of the term. But often when you hear academics talk about free will, they're talking about something uh, different. Um, and what are they talking about? Well, you better ask them uh, because uh, almost every academic... Maybe, maybe this is a slight exaggeration, but uh, not too much. Almost every academic uses it in a slightly different way. Uh, so for instance, one area where this sort of became really important was, well, I think it started in, in the 60s and 70s uh, with a neuroscientist named Benjamin Libet, but uh, it's continued on. And how do, you spell the, how do you spell the last name again? Libet, L-I-B-E-T. Okay. Um, it's, it started with his pioneering neuroscience work, which we can talk about if, if you want to, but uh, it really started to gain traction, I think, probably in the, the early 2000s, uh, in the age of the internet, when you started getting all of these, uh, a lot of news stories saying that neuroscientists ha have, have empirical evidence that we don't have free will. But what you find is if you go back and actually read these neuroscientists and you see what they mean by free will, they either don't have anything in particular in mind, right? They're, they're sort of all over their place and how they're using it. Or uh, they mean something kind of spooky and supernatural. Uh, they mean the power to act independently of a physical process or the power to act uh, in a way that isn't constrained by the laws of nature or something like that. So it's, it's something pretty, pretty robust and, and pretty fantastical. Um, and so if that's what you wanna mean by free will, then I think, no, we don't have that. Uh, we don't have the power to act independently of physical processes or in a way that's not constrained by the laws of nature. And I think you should believe this, I, I should say, even if you believe in an immaterial soul. Uh, so even if you think uh, that we have immaterial souls, I still think that we don't have the power to act independently of of a physical process, because even if you believe in an in, uh, a mater immaterial soul, um, you should still believe that that soul interacts with uh, right the physical world. Obviously, it does. If I have an immaterial soul and that immaterial soul is is what I am, right, then that it interacts with physical processes and it's influenced by physical processes, even if. Right. It even if it itself is not a physical thing or a physical process. So this sort of magical thing that neuroscience says yeah. is disproven, I think we don't have that. But then again, I, I, I might I might be missing you, but I, I think okay. So when you said magical stuff, I meant I went right to I can fly mm -hmm. or something. So free will me doesn't mean I'm not sure if that's what you meant. 
but yeah free i just will doesn't mean i'm superman i can't just fly right i can't do whatever i want right yes yeah i can't do that's, whatever i want and that's consistent with common sense because you said the common sense one was i'm not coerced i do it voluntarily well i voluntarily walk around the block but that doesn't mean that i can fly right exactly i guess i'm coerced i'm not we don't normally talk about being coerced to walk instead of fly yeah 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 like yeah, i was so, i i involuntarily walk because i can't fly you know yes yeah so definitely i don't mean anything magical like that but also you know the neuroscientists or many of them at least i think they've gotten better about this now because they've they've talked to too many philosophers at this point um but yeah, that's I think a, that's a really I'll, interesting thing you just said. Yeah. They've talked to too many philosophers. Were they not talking to philosophers before that? No, I, I don't think so. There wasn't any, any really any intersection or, or not much. And then uh, when did they start talking to philosophers? You think it was around this time around, I'd say the early 2000s uh, when some of their claims started getting some headlines uh, claims that our intentions don't cause our behavior uh, claims that they've disproven free will and the philosophers, you know, who, who, who wanted to be empirically well-informed, you know, were interested in this, this research that they were doing in their experiments. And so they started reading it. And one of the things the philosophers came to see is, Hey, what you mean by free will is not what we mean by free will. Um, you mean this um, supernatural thing, right? This thing that transcends the law, laws of nature or that uh, isn't constrained in any way by physical processes or events, but that's not what we mean. Um, and then- I gotcha. I'm, I think I'm tracking with you now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Then, so then I think many- So the philosophers played a role of like bringing the scientists kind of down to earth a little bit more, would you say? Yeah, and, and bringing conceptual clarity to their investigations. Um, yeah, and, and really, I, I did my graduate work at Florida State, and one of the cool things that happened there is my dissertation director, uh, Alfred Mealy, uh, those of you who want the spelling, it's M-E-L-E. I've, I've um, how, how do you spell it again? M-E-L-E, Mealy. Oh, yeah. Um, he, yeah. he got a grant from the Templeton Foundation to do, um, to study the, the science, philosophy, and theology behind free will. And a, a good chunk of that money was devoted to giving the money to neuroscientists to, and uh, cognitive psychologists and, uh, and so empirical researchers to do empirical research uh, on how human action is produced on, on the idea of free will. And I think that project had a large role to play in, um, in letting empirical researchers like neuroscientists and cognitive scientists get involved and interact with um, philosophers. Um, and I think the philosophers brought some conceptual clarity to these empirical studies. And I think uh, the empirical studies were, were interesting and informative to the philosophers as well. Can you describe briefly, if you can, uh, what, what you mean by an empirical study? Like what, what are we talking about here? I obviously yeah. you can't get into the details, but kind of like a rough and ready. So we have a something to picture. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't I say something about uh, Benjamin Libet's pioneering uh, neuroscientific experiments into free will that I mentioned earlier. Um, so what Libet had subjects, volunteers uh, do is he'd bring them into a lab and he would hook them up to an EEG machine uh, that just reads uh, electrical signals on your scalp. And um, he put them in front of uh, a clock. Uh, it's now called a Libet clock. You can, you can Google it and see what it looks like. Um, and it's just a clock that makes uh, one revolution around every, it's either every second or every two seconds. I can't remember. So, I mean, it's, it's moving pretty quickly around. And then different versions of the experiment have different, slightly different setups, but, you know, this one will work for our purposes. You, you, have, you have a button, like a computer button, and... Um, 
Libet tells you whenever you feel the urge or the desire or the wish, you press the button. And it's, and it's totally up to you just whenever you want to. But he asks you, try to note where the hand was on the clock when you pressed the button. Uh, so you're just sitting there, you're watching this clock go around and whenever you want to, you, you press the button. And you do this for you know however, however long. And um, the EEG machine reads the electrical signals from your scalp and the uh, computer records at what exact time you press the button each time. And they, then they average together your various presses. And what, uh, what Libet discovered was that you get this huge ramp up in electrical activity about half a second before you reported the urge or the intention uh, to, to press the button. Um, and so what he, I, I'm, I'm leaving out some details here and, and you know, Listeners who want to can, can go read, read more about these experiments. They're, they're pretty famous. Um, but what he found was that, you know, it looks like the brain has already decided to press the button about half a second before you actually pressed it and before you actually become conscious of any urge or wish or desire or choice to press the button. And so Libet and other neuroscientists took this as evidence that the brain decides for you, you don't decide for you. And the thought was, well, free will has to be a conscious thing. Um, but since the brain has sort of already decided for you about half a second before you became conscious of any wish or desire or urge to press the button, uh, you must not have free will. That was- wow. That was the thought. And wow. so this is a, clearly an empirical study, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Just looking at how the brain operates and um, yeah. So well, let, he, let me make a couple of comments about that. I yeah. just like as a lay person, I've studied it academically at the graduate level, but I'm not a pro like you are. I, I, I think it'd be helpful for me to just throw my two cents in there and, and then see what you got on this. Just the way you describe it, you're describing uh, Libet as, as it just, it seems like there's an assumption that there's the brain, the brain, <laughs> you know, uh, I always, I always think it's funny when people talk about the brain, you know, right. as if there's just one of them somewhere. Um, but, but there's, uh, apparently it belongs to you. You have a brain, but, but then there's this you thing <laughs> and, and uh, the you thing doesn't have free will, um, but it's not the same thing as the brain. Is, is that, it's, I mean, just, I mean, I'm, I might be reading too much into it, but that's, I'm trying to listen carefully. It just sounds like that's what the, the experiment was, was uh, trying to show. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, what's the, what's the you part? Um, I really thought that was interesting about the consciousness about free will too. Like every step of the way for a con for an, a free action, there's got to be a consciousness for, from the person doing it. Right. Right. So, okay. So I yeah, just threw right. some but stuff out there. <laughs> that itself is a, a philosophically interesting and, and maybe mildly controversial thought, right? That why does every part of a free choice or decision or action have to be conscious? Um, and, and you're right, maybe it does, uh, but that's a philosophical assumption that Libet was making in drawing these anti-free will conclusions from, from the experiment. Yeah, uh, it's, not, yeah. it's not a, I don't think that's common sense. Like my, what I mean by common sense is just the way you were using it, like kind of like the ordinary dude on the street, if you were to ask him, I don't know if they would say that, but yeah, yeah, I, right. I mean that 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 itself is an interesting philosophical claim, at, right? That that it could be discussed. But yeah, there, there's also this assumption, or there seems to be this assumption that you are you are something other than your brain, or your brain is like this other entity out here, and then there's you over here, and. Um, Although I think I would agree that we are not uh, identical to our brains still. Um, 
seems like our brain is a pretty important important part of us. And so if 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 big if here, but if the brain really is deciding or my brain is deciding right uh, half a second before uh, I become conscious of anything, I think it would be a leap to say that therefore I'm not doing anything. Well, maybe I'm doing something by using my brain. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So, so, but, but that, that's, that's a, a the sort of classic uh, experiment that kind of got. Is, what, what does he mean by decide too? Like, what do you mean by that? When yeah. people say the brain decides, I, I don't know. It seems like deciding is a, con- is a conscious thing right yeah do you think that the brain is conscious and the brain then and then the brain tells you hey i've already made this decision that's the one there's two people there's there's a brain that's one person and then there's you everybody thinks there's only one person there but there's actually two right the brain now i don't think himself had anything particular in in mind i think he was sort of using our folk psychological concept i mean even if you go back and read his original papers he talks about a wish or a decision or an urge right uh and and sometimes it seems like he's using these things interchangeably sometimes not um well this brings up just the that's a great example of uh, 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 the relationship between the brain and and you the body and you uh, i guess that's kind of a big deal do you think that's a big deal with meta, uh, the metaphysics of free will or do you think that you said earlier it's not it doesn't matter if you if you have an immaterial soul yeah so i myself am agnostic about immaterial souls so uh, my, my view of the person is a disjunctive one. I think uh, that we're either immaterial souls or we're human animals. I think those are, those are the two most uh, plausible views of uh, what we might think of as personal ontology. What the question, what metaphysically speaking, are we? Uh, and I think that uh, it's got to be one of those two, but I'm agnostic as to which one it is. Right? Okay. So I think there are interesting arguments for uh, the, the soul view or the, the sometimes known as the dualistic view, uh, but it doesn't have to be dualistic. Um, uh, but yeah. I also think there are compelling arguments for the, the idea that we're uh, human animals. Gotcha. Okay. Human animals, that would be the view that there's... Um... There's nothing really different about us uh, as, as humans from animals in a metaphysical sense. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want to say that there's nothing different because there's obviously lots of differences. We're obviously uh, cognitively much more sophisticated than uh, other biological species. Uh, but yeah, fundamentally, we on this view, we would be animals in the same way that a giraffe is an animal or a squirrel is an animal or a chimpanzee is an animal. Okay. We're, we're, we're a member of the biological species Homo sapien. That would be right. this view right. is sometimes known as animalism if for yeah. those who are inclined to look at the philosophical literature. Is that compatible with Christianity, you think, or a religious view like uh, Islam or? Yeah, I think ab- absolutely so. Um, I mean, especially if you think about Christianity, uh, it's a it's a central tenet of what we might think of as orthodox or classical Christianity that uh, Jesus rose bodily from the dead and that uh, one day those who are in Christ, as it's sometimes put, will also rise from the dead. And and the thought, uh, the theological thought, as I understand it, is not that uh, those who are in Christ will somehow be spirits floating up in in, the the misty heavens, as it were, but uh, it, it will be a physical resurrection. And certainly uh, there are strains within Judaism and Islam that hold similar beliefs about a bodily resurrection. Um, so on the animalist view, what is resurrected um, would be just you, your, your right. resurrection. 
connected. Um, yeah. Not not your body. Whereas on a dualist view that says you're both body and soul, what's resurrected is yeah. your body, but your soul has continued to exist. Now on that view, though, the the another question would be what where are you or what is your status while yeah. you're dead? Uh, yeah. Because the status of the body is obviously becoming dirt and you know there's yeah. just bones there the sinews are not even there after a while the skin's gone all, all of the brain cells are gone the, the blood cells are gone so this is a Those fun are, problem uh for the medicine now we, really now we're native americans yeah <laughs> now this, now we're indians this is a fun problem for the metaphysics of uh personal identity especially if you hold a religious view so I think what the, the religious animalist has to say, or the animalist who believes in some sort of uh, resurrection, is uh, they have to say that there's, well, there's a couple of things that they could say, but one of the most obvious is they have to say, well, you didn't exist during that period. There was a gap in your existence. So here's, here's maybe an analogy. Imagine you have a, an old timey watch that your great grandfather gave to you, you know, one of those little pocket things. Um, and what is it? Well, it's, it's a physical thing, right? It's a, it's a physical mechanism. And now imagine uh, you, you take it apart down to its smallest pieces and you scatter those pieces to the four winds of the, of the earth. Um, you might say that that watch no longer exists. And then you bring all the pieces back together and you put it back together. And now you've, now you've got the watch again. Um, and at least one one interpretation of that story is that the watch has a gappy existence, right? It existed for a period of time and then it was dismantled and then it was uh, put back together. Um, because there's nothing over and above the parts and the, all the original parts are there in this example, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it gets more a lot of work to get those parts back after they were all around the world and they're small parts. Yes. But well, assume, assume you could do that. You're Sherlock Holmes and you got that exact part, got them all back together. You're saying that's the same watch on that view. Yeah. Because yeah. The, the watch doesn't have a soul. There's no extra thing besides the parts. Yeah. Now it gets complicated for the animalist who also has a religious view according to which we're resurrected. It gets more complicated because um, in real life, we know that corpses that decay, their parts uh, become parts of other things, right? It's where the, the phrase pushing up daisies comes from, right? When you're dead and buried, eventually uh, the molecules that used to be a part of your physical organism uh, will become parts of other physical organisms, right? Daisies and oak trees and, uh, you know, other people, um, if given a long enough time. So, so there it gets, it gets complicated um, about what exactly the animalist wants to say, because if, you know, I'm currently made up of molecules that, you know, made up someone who lived 20,000 years ago, well, how, how am I going to be resurrected and that other person going to be resurrected? God can't uh, compile the exact same parts uh, for that other person because those parts are now part of me. Uh, right. but you know how does animal, that work for human rights too like uh if if people have rights apparently that's some kind of property of the body uh but the body's always changing parts and so are they the same rights they had before yeah yeah um, these are interesting questions and, and again right these are these are questions for the animalist uh who who also accepts a religious view according to which we're resurrected. And there are various things that they say. I, I could recommend maybe for your listeners, think to two people who hold this view, uh, who I think have, have written on this a little bit are the philosopher Peter Van Inwagen mm -hmm. and Trenton Merritt. Peter Van Inwagen is at Duke University and Trenton Merritt is at the University of Virginia. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And what would you recommend they, um, they check out? Is there a specific book or is there yeah, a there YouTube is. video or something? I mean, um, newspaper article that they wrote, something for National Geographic. 
I, one particular Encyclopedia Britannica article they wrote, maybe. Yeah. Um, so I, I think one one good source, especially for um, you know listeners who maybe aren't philosophers or theologians, uh, don't have the academic training, but are interested, an essay by Trent Merricks called "The Resurrection of the Body," and it's in the Oxford Handbook of Philosophical Theology. But if you Google um, if you Google Trenton Merrick's The Resurrection of the Body, it's the first, uh, it's the first wow. entry there. So someone's all over the search engine optimization on that one. Jeez. So I think that would be know a what good... Trenton Merrick's, uh, we know what his uh, hobby is on his part time. Okay, cool. Can I just ask you a question about uh, philosophical methodology? Sure. Yeah. People are probably listening to you and they're thinking, okay, he's, he's pretty good at just laying out the options and describing the different ways that people come at the, the, the positions. Maybe if there's a new position that comes out, he's good at describing that you could, they probably get a sense that that's what you do quite a lot, but, um, there's an additional component to philosophy besides just describing what people think. And you can see that right away if you think about it enough, because obviously the people that you're describing were had to come at it a certain way, and they're, they're not just describing what came before them. And so how do you decide which view is the right one that you believe how do you how do you uh what's the process that you go through to uh and and is that what you're constantly thinking about when you read a position or a set of positions are you constantly thinking what's the right answer here am I, what what what's my view about this yeah um that's certainly the way I, I approach philosophy. I, I view philosophy as consistent with the sciences and other academic disciplines. I mean, presumably, if you're a historian, uh, you want to know the truth about the past. Uh, you're not interested in only telling good stories. Now, historians might want to tell a good story as well, uh, but they don't want to tell a false story. They want to tell a true story. Uh, scientists right, want to want to know what the the truth about the, the physical world is, um, and I see philosophy as as a truth seeking discipline. Um, so you know my 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 central philosophical aim is I want to know the truth about these things. Um, you know I want to know if I'm a physical animal or if I'm a brain that resides within a physical animal or if I'm some process in the brain or if I'm an immaterial soul. I want to know if there's a God. I want to know if we have free will or don't. Uh, I do want to come back to the free will in, in just a second. Um, all right, so I, I see philosophy as a truth-seeking discipline, um, and that's primarily what, what, I'm, what I'm in it for. Now, as far as well, how do you actually go about uh, finding the truth, I'll, when I figure that one out, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know. I think one thing that philosophy has done for me is I, I think at least I hope this is true. Um, and I hope this isn't just a self-serving claim, but I think it's made me intellectually more humble because it's, it's shown me how difficult some of these questions really are to answer. Um, and so I think as I've gotten older, I actually hold fewer views with any sort of uh, firmness. I mean, even even the views that I do hold, I, I hold I hold fairly loosely. Um, as you know, even with what I said about human persons, what are we? Well, I don't know. We're I think we're either human animals or uh, immaterial souls. Uh, but which of those two are we? Um, you know, there I'm not sure. I, I don't I don't see that the the arguments point decisively in one way or another. I think that's pretty well said. And that comes out. You seem like you're you hold things loosely. You seem like you're a pretty chill guy. Um, I hear an accent before we get back to free will, which we're going. But I hear an accent. Is it New York? Is it Brooklyn? Oh yeah, I am. I'm an Atlanta boy, born and raised. Atlanta. Oh man, I was way off. 
That's like a hundred miles away. That's hundreds Although, of miles away from New York. Yeah. So when I, when That's I over a hundred miles away from New York, when I left Atlanta for Los Angeles uh, to go out and do my graduate work, uh, I start my graduate work. Everyone, everyone noticed my Southern accent. And then when four or five years later, when I, I, I moved back to the South, everyone thought I had lost my Southern accent. So maybe, maybe, maybe you're getting a blend of, of the South and then the, the left coast. Well, of course, when you were in Los Angeles, you were in the South, you were in Southern California. Right. Yeah. But so you that, fit right uh, in. To, 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 to true Southerners, that doesn't count as the South. If, uh, if you we're, didn't fight in the civil right, war, right, right, uh, right. then you're not part of the South. That's right. So now, I'm trying to picture you as a little kid there in Georgia. Did you have like a dip in and you were walking around always philosophical, but you didn't have training. So you were not really that humble yet. And you were like, boy, we got free will, boy. No. What are you talking about with the material soul? We got free will. I definitely, was... I definitely never dipped that. That never appealed to me. Okay. Um, just, just pot. Only. Yeah. Pot. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah, I, I was not a very philosophical kid, I don't think, or maybe I was, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I certainly wasn't a very academic kid. I mean, I, I did well in school. It was fine, but uh, it wasn't an end in itself. Um, you know, it was just something that you had to do when you were a kid. And uh, I learned pretty early on that if I got, got good grades, that things went well at home. Um, so, you know, I got reasonably good grades, at least up until high school. Um, didn't do, didn't do so well in high school, but um, yeah. So I wasn't particularly academically inclined. Um, so take heart. I, I wasn't if that you're kid failing high school. You oh, sorry. Go ahead. What were you saying? I, said, I, I wasn't that kid whose face was always buried in a book. Oh, okay. That wasn't me. All right. So take heart. Everybody out there failing high school right now. You too can become a professor. Yes, you can. <laughs> That's, that's cool. So what was it that turned things for you as, uh, I mean, obviously you're not academic, then you become academic. What was it? Yeah. Oh, well, I think there were probably several steps, but the main step, there was, there was certainly one particular moment. Um, it was my junior year of high school and, um, had to do a book report for, you know, some literature class or English class or something. And uh, I was dreading this because I didn't particularly enjoy reading. Uh, I, I was a bit of a couch potato. Um, and so I was sifting through the books of the public of the school library because I had to pick out a book uh, to do. And I stumbled across this book uh, called The Fellowship of the Ring. And I uh, pulled it out and I said, well, this looks as good as any. And so it took me about three weeks to read the thing. But once I got done, uh, I thought two things. I thought, A, this wasn't that bad. I, I kind of like this. And B, this isn't the end of the story. Um, so this, the and this story is before the movies came out. I yeah, know we're dating you. So the, yeah. this is the original thing. You got J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah. Wow. And so I asked my mom, I said, I said, look, you know, I did this, read this book for my book report and uh, it was pretty, pretty cool, but it's like, it stopped in the middle. There's, there's like two more. Uh, can you find me? Can you find me these books? And she said, yeah. So she went out to that next weekend, she went out to a yard sale and she found a raggedy old copy of the two towers and she brought that home and I read it in a day. I just sat in a chair and my mom brought me meals and I ate the meals in the chair reading the book. And I think in like 10 hours I had, I had finished the book. And so I said, well, you better get the third part. And uh, so this she, is, this is the version without the pictures. So you weren't just looking at the pictures. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. No, right. no pictures. So yes, the next weekend she went to the public library and got the return of the King. And I read that in about a day and a half. And after that, I thought, wow, reading is awesome. And so from then on, I just started being a reader. Um, 
and just just wow. tried to to read stuff. Uh, it just taught me that that reading could be enjoyable and immersive. And and as I, I don't know, for those who are watching on YouTube, you can see I've got my uh, map of Middle Earth here in the background. So that was a that was a pretty formative couple of weeks for me. Wow. So you went from non-nerd to, to nerd. nerd overnight. Yeah. Wow. And you had a mom that brought you meals. Your right. mom played a key role. What, yeah. Who, how, what, would you have finished those books? Had you had to go uh, microwave those nachos on your own? Or... Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm sure I would have, but it just would have taken me a little longer. Um, so that's a, that's an incredible story. I, I don't think I've ever knew that Justin. I, wow. I've known you for a long time and I've never known that. Well, okay. Go back to free will. Um, someone who's listened this far is is still biting their nails right but they don't know if they're biting their nails freely yet and yes and exactly. we haven't heard, they just want to know the answer what's the answer do you ever yeah, get students yeah. like that they just want to know the answer absolutely yeah um i want to so, get your take on how to teach philosophy because that's a dis different thing than studying it but yes yes it is yeah I'll, i want to get your take on that too yeah so i I, I think the answer is uh, yes, yes, and no. So yes, we've got the mundane stuff that we talked about at the very beginning. We make choices that are reasonable choices. They're not forced. They're voluntary in that sense. So just in that pedestrian sense, we do things of our own free will. We do them voluntarily. Yes, uh, clearly we've got that. The stuff that a lot of the neuroscientists were talking about, do we have the ability to make choices uh, independently of any physical process? No way. We don't have that. But philosophers are usually talking about a third thing when they talk about free will. Uh, they're not talking about uh, this non-physical stuff, but they're also not talking about this sort of pedestrian voluntary action. Uh, so what are they talking about? Well, they're talking about a, a kind of control that we have over our actions that can make us uh, morally responsible, that can make us of praise and blame. Uh, that can make us fitting targets of people's resentment and indignation, that can make feeling guilty be appropriate. Uh, they're talking about a level of control that, that sort of grounds those sorts of uh, moral and legal responses to people. That's what they mean by free will. Um, and so I think we have that too. And I, I think uh, that amounts very roughly to it being up to us whether we do one thing or another. So you're trying to make a choice. Um, you know, are you going to cheat on your taxes or are you going to be honest? And it's at least partly up to you whether you cheat or whether you do the honest thing. Um, that, that's, that's very roughly what uh, a lot of philosophers are talking about when they, when they talk about free will. And I think we've got that too, although I think we probably have it less often than we think we do. Interesting. That seems like a common sense thing as well, because so much of the legal system and moral, moral praise and blame, there's a lot of overlap between those, uh, but that's really rooted in common sense. Yeah, I, I, th I think it, I think it is, a common sense belief, but but maybe not uh, maybe not as much as we might think. So consider consider an example. Um, suppose suppose I see my four year old and he's just about to run out in front of a bus, and you know I do the instinctual thing and I just run and grab him and pull him out of the way of the oncoming vehicle. Um, could I have done otherwise than that? Was it really up to me whether I did that? Well, my inclination is to think not, uh, given the sort of person I am, uh, you know, I'm a minimum, I'm a, at the very least, I'm a minimally decent father, or so I would like to think, uh, just really wasn't up to me to, you know, allow the bus to hit my child or to wait and see, you know, if the bus stopped or whatever it was. Uh, I think in, in, in those circumstances, uh, I just had to do what I did. 
And I think there, I think that's a, maybe a dramatic example, but I think there are lots of other cases in our everyday lives that are very similar to that. So, you know, I had this uh, podcast scheduled for today and, um, you know, I don't think that given just my psychology and the sort of person that I am that I could have just blown it off for no reason, you know, just because I wanted to go back to the beach or something. Uh, you know, that, that, that's just not, that just wasn't in the cards as it were. Uh, so I think there are a lot of everyday actions that we just make out of our character and given the circumstances we were in and uh, the sort of character and psychology we have in the moment, it wasn't a realistic possibility for us to do anything different. And if it wasn't a realistic possibility for us to do anything different, then it wasn't really up to us um, whether we did it or not. So yes, I do think that a lot of our actions are free. Uh, a, lo a lot of the times it, it is up to us whether we do one thing or another, but a lot of the times it's not up to us whether we do one thing or another. So I think that uh, whether we have free will, uh, well, sometimes we do in some circumstances and in other circumstances we don't. And in terms of uh, heroism and battle, before awarding the the medal of honor to the the guy like mike murphy for example lieutenant murphy um navy seal killed in combat in afghanistan a subject of uh he's a character in the book lone survivor for example do should there be an investigation as to what the type of person mr murphy was <laughs> um before we honor him with uh awards i mean how how that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense to to say well he really couldn't have done otherwise because if you knew mike yeah he he would have gone up to that rock and he would have made that call and exposed himself at great uh above and beyond the call of duty doesn't seem to apply because he just would have thought that's his duty. Yeah, yeah <laughs> that, it's actually in exact in line with his duty. Yeah, great, great question. Um, so I think there's two things to say about this. One is, um, I think that even if we didn't have free will, I think there can there can still be lots of reasons to hold people morally responsible for their behavior. Uh, there can still be lots of reasons to praise and blame people. Um, these would be what we might think of as consequentialist reasons, right? So maybe blaming people will make them more likely to do the right thing next time because they don't want to get sanctioned or punished by their, by their friends or family or their peers. And the same with praise, uh, right? If we praise people for their good behavior, maybe that will make them more likely to uh, behave better in the future. I mean, these are empirical claims, but uh, they're, they're, not, they're not implausible on the surface. So we can have lots of reasons to hold people morally responsible, even if they don't deserve those responses. So the fact that someone deserves the response isn't the only reason to give them the response. There might be other justifications for it as well. So that's one thing. So maybe, uh, right, people who do these tremendously uh, heroic and courageous acts, uh, um, there can be all kinds of reasons to praise them and to honor them, right? That, that don't necessarily have to do with dessert. So that's the first thing. And the second, here's the second thing. Um, we can be morally responsible for things that we didn't have control over at the time if we had control over them at some earlier time. So here's the sort of classic example that you'll find in the philosophical literature. Imagine some guy, Joe, and Joe goes to the bar and he gets uh, fall down drunk and then he hops behind the wheel and goes out driving. And uh, because he's so drunk, he loses control of the car and hits and kills a pedestrian. Right? So at the time of the accident, we can imagine that Joe was so drunk that he just didn't have control over his actions. And so he couldn't have helped hitting and killing the pedestrian. 
right? But I don't think that means that uh, he doesn't deserve blame for, for what he did, because he did have control earlier in the evening. And uh, if Joe, right, is a sort of ordinary, sensible person, he knows the dangers and the risks of drunk driving. So even though at the time of the accident, he couldn't have uh, done otherwise than hit the pedestrian, uh, he could have done otherwise earlier in the evening, right? So he could have chosen not to drink in the first place, or he could have chosen to get a designated driver or to call an Uber or something like that. He could, he could have done these other actions. And if he had done them, he would uh, not have hit and killed the pedestrian later on in the evening. So he had free will over these earlier actions and that can render him morally responsible for this later action that he didn't uh, have control over. So philosophers call this tracing, right? So we trace the person's uh, moral responsibility and control back to earlier actions that led to the later action. And we see this all the time. So we can hold doctors accountable, say, for uh, giving you a medicine that you were allergic to because they didn't take the time earlier uh, to, you know, read your chart and see that you were allergic. So, yeah, maybe they weren't trying to make you sicker, uh, but they should have known better because they should have taken actions earlier in the timeline to, um, yeah. to make to make sure. Oh so, yeah, yeah. So going back to, to, to your war hero example, um, yeah. I was going to, I was going to say, yeah, the war heroes, does, does it mean that Lieutenant Murphy has responsibility uh, for the kind of person he wanted to become subjecting himself to the kind of arduous training and excelling every step of the way and, and that training? Or were you going to say something different? No, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. I, I, at least I would say that's certainly a possibility, right? Um, so it might be that he doesn't deserve any credit for his heroic deeds. Maybe he just sort of, that's the character he had. And um, that's just the sort of person he is. And he did it. And that's great. He still did a wonderful thing, right? That doesn't undermine the, the goodness or the, the moral quality of his deed. Uh, but if that's just the way he was, and he didn't do anything to make himself that, that way, and he couldn't have done otherwise, then I would say, yeah, he doesn't deserve any credit. That's one possibility. But another possibility is, yeah, maybe, maybe he made himself into that sort of person. Maybe he faced tough choices at an earlier point in his life and says, no, here's the sort of person I want to become. I want to become the sort of person who just doesn't have to think about whether I'm going to right, take a bullet for my friends or make sacrifices to help the innocent. I, I, just, I just want to be the sort of person that doesn't even have to think about that thing. And so I'm going to practice now being that sort of person. And that made him become that sort of person. And that's a possibility too. And if that's that's the fact, then yeah, I think he deserves uh, some credit for those later actions. People that are interested in getting trained in self-defense oftentimes have discrete choices they have, like, am I going to sign up for this course of study in martial arts or firearms safety training and accuracy training and scenario training? Um, because if you're not trained, a lot of this has to be trained into you, right? When you, when you, uh, they used to call it studying the martial arts, but I don't think people talk about, they don't use that word studying anymore. They, it's, it's too academic. Yeah. They, they use the word training or drilling. Yeah. Drilling. Yeah. And, and then that does something to you. It, it makes you into, I guess it's fair to say a type of person that would respond in a certain way without thinking. Yeah, yeah. And I think, uh, right, that's, that happens, right? Uh, this sort of character. But you still have the choice about whether you're going to show up the first day and then the second day, maybe later it gets easier. Right, yeah, friends or whatever. yeah, exactly. So uh, I, I believe this sort of process happens. I do think, again, like I said earlier, I think uh, the degree to which we shape our characters is much less than we might sort of commonsensically be inclined to think it is, uh, but I do think it's there. Um, it may not be as pronounced as we think, but it, it, it's certainly an element among many. How has being a father shaped you in philosophy? Does it change your view of how people are? And just when you see somebody that young and how, how they're becoming? Uh, 
I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's changed anything in me philosophically, um, but it, I think it certainly confirmed what I already thought that, you know, a lot of, a lot of who we are is just already there. You know, it, we, we didn't, we didn't uh, shape who we are. So, you know, we were just talking about this process of shaping yourself into a, a sort of person. And I do think that happens, but I also think that uh, a lot of people under, underestimate the degree to which uh, we sort of have certain building blocks and certain materials to work with. And uh, they're all we have to work with. Um, and I think I certainly see that in my kids. You know, my, my son is very different from my daughter and that's nothing that uh, we or they did. It's just, you know, uh, right. It's just I hear genetic. that a lot from parents. I, you know, that's, that's a very common thing. And I've always interested in how that shapes now you teach philosophy, right? What kind of yeah. courses do you teach and what's your methodology for teaching? Uh, let me ask you a specific question uh, and a follow-up. Do, do you think it's helpful in teaching philosophy? And it might be for certain courses it's helpful, maybe not in other courses like the general ones, maybe it's not helpful, but letting your views just kind of hang out, just being who you are. Yeah, this is how I see the world. You don't have to agree or... I don't know how you do it. Do you just describe? Um, because it's kind of hard to hide your view as you, even as you're describing another view, because sometimes even at the level of description, subtle differences can be there between two people that describe a view. Right. Yeah. So I, I do a little bit of a mixture. So uh, I, I teach at Flagler College, which uh, is a small residential. Um, college in St. Augustine, Florida. And so I, I teach a pretty wide range of classes. I, I very often teach our freshman seminar, which is a, a class for incoming freshmen to sort of get them acclimated to uh, college and college academics. Uh, I teach a, I regularly teach a class called Ethical Controversies. That's pretty much just what it sounds like in which we uh, discuss various ethical controversies that might confront us as individuals or as a society. And I also teach a lot of upper division philosophy classes in our major philosophy of law uh, as well. Uh, we, have a, we have a really great um, law minor uh, for students who are trying to prepare to go to law school. Uh, so I, I teach philosophy of law as well. Um, What's your teaching load? Uh, it's a 4-4. That's the standard. Some, some faculty at Flagler have uh, lower teaching loads if they have administrative responsibilities. And we also get course releases for research, but the, the standard load is 4-4. So um, it's a teaching so, intensive college. Yeah, very teaching intensive college. Um, so... I approach things a little bit differently, uh, depending on whether it's an upper division or lower division course. In, in the lower division course, I try not to let my views come out as much. Uh, I try to present uh, both sides of an issue uh, as, as best I can, as most as comprehensively as I can. And, and I try to do this in my upper division classes as well, but uh, usually in my lower division classes, uh, I, I won't put in my two cents, at least as, as much as, as is possible. I, I try to present students with the best arguments on both sides and, and let them uh, wrestle, wrestle with that. Um, but I don't necessarily try to hide my views either. A lot of times students will ask me what I think. And uh, my, my response in the lower division classes is, ask me at the end of the semester or at the end of this unit. So I'm perfectly happy to tell them what I think about an issue, but I like to do it after I've sort of presented both sides as fairly as I possibly can. And sometimes this is really easy because sometimes I just don't have a view. I say, well, I, I don't know what to think. This is a very hard issue or a hard problem. And other times I do have views and you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make those known, but I try to do that after uh, they've had a chance to, to wrestle with it, with at least as, as neutral a presentation as I can muster. Now, I, I, I let this slip a little bit in, in my upper division classes. Um, I try to, as students progress along in their philosophical education with our majors, I try to start uh, treating them more as interlocutors, right? And we're trying to train philosophers. So um, I still try to present both sides of the issue as fairly uh, as I can, but uh, I'll certainly take a firmer stand and, uh, and 
debate my students, maybe, I don't know if, if more harshly is, is not the right way to put it, but, uh, right, I'll, I'll try to challenge them. Yeah, Torturously. I'll, I'll, I'll try to challenge them a, a little bit more and, uh, and is, maybe is often press the view that I think is, is the right one a little bit harder than I would in the lower division classes. Are there any hills you're willing to die on, so to speak, as it were, um, in philosophy? Uh, or or whatever topic comes up is there are there things that you feel like you have strong views on yeah i i, I certainly think there's there's things that i i have strong views on um but i for my students especially i try to i try to model um try to model a sense of intellectual humility and openness, even on those things where I say, look, I'm, I'm pretty sure about this one. Um, I, you know, I'll say I'm pretty sure about this one, but I'm also willing to consider the evidence against it and, you know, um, and, and listen. And I, I think, I think for philosophy instructors, I think for all, all teachers, this is really important, um, especially in an age where, I don't think students get a lot of critical thinking outside the classroom That's and critical true. thinking in the truest sense of That's true. being open and honest and saying, yeah, yeah sometimes I don't know, right. or I'm wrong. Um, right. yeah. So I think that's very important. So uh, certainly there are things that, you know, I think, yeah, you're probably not going to talk this one out of me, uh, right, me out right. of this one, but I, I'm certainly, but I'm certainly, you know, willing to listen. What about logic? You didn't mention logic as a as a course there. Is that required? Yes, it is required for our law minors and for our philosophy majors. Um, okay. But it's not a class that I regularly teach. Is, th is there a philosophy course that's required for everybody? Um, we, yes, there is. Um, well, sorry, not, not for the general education program. Um, Okay. We recent, Flagler recently overhauled our general education program. Um, and so what we have now is we have several different literacies that students have to, they have to take one course in each literacy. So a literacy might be uh, something like quantitative reasoning or writing or historical inquiry. Uh, and one of those literacies is ethical reasoning. So they have to take a class that, uh, that, teaches them how to reason about right and wrong, good and evil, should or should not. Now that may or may not end up being a philosophy class though. So, all right, we have uh, classes that fill that literacy that are in political science or that are in literature or history or philosophy. Right? So there are a variety of different disciplines who teach that literacy. You went to Biola, so I know that you at least at one point were a Christian, unless you were lying. <laughs> No, no, I was not lying. Uh, hey, I lie for hours every night. Nothing against it. Um, but are you still a Christian then? Are you, yeah. So how do you how do you view faith and what's the role of faith in your teaching and learning? Yeah, um, I am. Uh, so I I consider myself, uh, you know, a mere Christian in, in C.S. Lewis's terms. So C.S. Lewis has a classic book uh, for listeners who don't know called Mere Christianity where he lays out uh, what he sort of thinks are, are the essentials of the Christian faith that, uh, that every good Christian should hold. And, Does that uh, mean that you go to a mirror church? Uh, well, no. Sorry, I had I, to get that in there. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm an Anglican, I think. Well, actually, I, I don't even know if I would like to describe myself as Anglican. I attend uh, an Anglican church, um, but I don't get too much into infighting amongst denominations. I'm a pretty ecumenical guy when it comes to my theology. And in fact, I think I'm even mirror, if that's a, a word we can coin, than Lewis was. I think, uh, I think that uh, the essentials of, of the Christian faith are, are a lot uh, thinner than even, even Lewis would say. So um, like, can you give an example of what you mean by that? Uh, so a good example would be the Trinity. For instance, a, a lot of Christians think that uh, that you have to believe in the doctrine of the Trinity in order to really be a Christian. That that's sort of a, a core essential 
uh, tenet of the faith, right? It's in all the classic creeds and uh, I, I probably would deny that. Um, it might be one of those things um, that you need. Let me clarify, form. you're denying the Trinity or you're denying that it's required to be a, a part of mere Christianity? Yes. You're, or both. Uh, the, the latter. <laughs> no, the, the latter. Uh, you you okay. needn't believe that, right, in, in order gotcha. to uh, be in the fold, as it were. Right. Uh, so I have, okay. I have some... I, I would say this. I, I have I have a pretty pretty low bar for you know what what levels of what kind of beliefs uh, make someone a Christian, and I'm pretty ecumenical uh, and broad-minded in terms of of right, various uh, theological disputes. Gotcha. Do you what do you think about the Trinity? Do you think it's more likely than not true? Yeah, I mean my my own my own thing is. Uh, I, I tend to think that these debates are beyond our ken. Um, I, don't, so I don't know that agnostic that we, that we have. I don't know if I would say I'm agnostic. I think you know. I tend to uh, the Nicene Creed. Uh, I think I can. I think I can commit to everything in the Nicene Creed in terms of my theological commitments. I probably wouldn't go much beyond that, and I certainly don't think that you have to affirm everything within the Nicene Creed. You're not prepared to torture people for not agreeing with the Nicene Creed. Cer certainly not. Okay, yeah, certainly that's not. That's kind of what I was getting at. All right, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, it's yeah, that's a that's a lot there. I mean, there's I kind of uh, dumped that on you at the end there. I apologize if you you feel like you're crushed there for time, but, no, no. but it's it's sort of like asking if someone's into martial arts and they say I'm a mere martial artist. But then they always go to the Taekwondo dojo. <laughs> they right. never go anywhere else. It's like, well, hmm, well, maybe you misunderstood my question. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I tend to think that uh, those sorts of uh, denominational identifications uh, aren't, aren't super important and yeah. often, often pretty unhelpful. Okay. Well, there's definitely been a lot of religious conflict in history. So your way of looking at things might be helpful as far as that goes, um, easing up some of the conflicts, because I think we have a natural tendency to, to be divisive as people. That's just church history, yes, <laughs> right? Certainly. So, okay, well, right. um, uh, yeah. is there anything else you wanted yeah. to add about free will or about anything? Oh, I don't think so. I think, uh, I think we covered the essentials. Okay. Well, uh, it's been great catching up with you, Justin. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Absolutely.